Well, good morning, Riverbend family. Hope you're all doing well. Um, it is a joy to stand right here on a Sunday morning. I, I haven't stood here in a long time, but it's, it's just real interesting. I mean, there is where my son got baptized. You know, I see some of your faces and being able to partner with you guys in reaching college students, you know, your, your heart for students. And, um, you know, the college students from Lehigh and you guys taking up this part of the room, dear friends in the back of the room here, people that I've cried with, prayed with, cared for, who sent us uh, to a ministry in New York, and now we're back. I mean, it's a real beautiful thing to stand. I was just having an emotional moment standing up here right now looking around and seeing the faces. God bless you, brothers and sisters. We're on a good journey together, amen? We're a pilgrim people. We're on our way to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what St. Peter says in one of his letters. We're on our way somewhere, and, and we're in the ark so to speak, if you can think of the Noah's Ark imagery, we're in the ark and his name is Jesus. He has saved us from our sins and he saved us from the flood, but is bringing us to a new creation, amen? And so this is the journey. We are a pilgrim people on a journey together. And this morning's text says, Jesus says in this morning's text, I'm going to prepare a place for you. That's what he's doing. He's preparing a place for us and we're getting ready for that place. And he's getting us ready for that place. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to turn to John chapter 14. Uh, we're just going to look at a few verses in John chapter 14, but Lord willing, we'll also look through the prism of John 14 at a whole different other things that are happening around this particular text this morning. Let me pray for us before we dive in. Oh God, you're so good. Thank you for the things that have happened in this room that have helped each one of us in some way take another step on the journey of faith and trust in following you. And thank you that this journey has a most glorious end. Lord, we pray that our time and through our time this morning, there'd be such a beautiful sense of getting caught up in the glorious end, the glorious purposes to which you've called us to, and the glorious salvation that you've won for us in Jesus, Father. So, Lord, turn our eyes and fix our eyes on you this morning, and I pray that more worship, more praise would just spring up spontaneously from our lips and from our lives because we met here together in your name this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. We're going to dive in in just a second, but, but preparing a place for someone is hard work. Have you ever prepared a place for someone? You know, the first time, I, I remember our first home in Jersey I lived there as a bachelor for, for a little less than a year, and then we got engaged that year, and then we got married the following year, Aaron and I. Uh, I was a youth pastor at a local church in Brick Township, New Jersey, and part of the job was you get a house. There was a the parsonage on the church property, it was a, and it was way too much house for me. And in that house were many rooms. There were many, there were many rooms in that house, and they were empty rooms, and I was a bachelor, so I didn't know how to decorate rooms. And um, I had all kinds of just piecemeal borrowed furniture. You know bachelor's homes. You know what they look like. Some of your homes look like this, you know? And, and so uh, in this house were many rooms. And I remember uh, it was a beautiful assignment that the Lord gave me. I got a chance to be the director of youth ministries for the church. But the, I, you know how, this is how it works in churches, if you don't know. Um, there's a position, but basically it's whatever the last guy did is your position. That's how it works. And so the position was director of youth ministries, but the last guy also 
uh, was the pastoral oversight for the seniors ministry at the church. And so I did youth ministry and, and a ministry called Senior Joy. And as I spent time with our, our older brothers and sisters, uh, it was a joy to hear their stories and get to know their faith and, and pray with them and be encouraged mutually by them. And one of the things that they would say to me often is, you got a really big house there. you got to fill all those rooms. you got to fill those rooms. When are you guys going to have kids? And, and, and on and on and on. And I remember when, we, uh, when Aaron was pregnant with our first child, Caleb. There he is right there, and I won't embarrass him. But, but we started to prepare a place for him. And preparing a place for him was such joy because, you know, and I'll get to why I have this picture on the screen in a minute. This was when it was in process. Um, but it was such joy because it was like, oh my goodness, which room are we going to give him? And then, goodness, the things that are going to happen in this room, the, the father-son times, the moments of reading, the mother-son times, the, all the family times, the train table, there are so many good things that happened in this room. And preparing a place for him was such a joy, but it was such a pain in the neck all at once. Right? Because here's the thing is, Erin is, has an amazing vision. She can see a room and see what it can be, and I can't. So she's like, oh, that room's going to be like this, and there's going to be squares on the wall. And it's gonna... I was like, okay, and just tell me what we got to do next. And um, somebody went, mm-hmm, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so the wall, here's the thing. is like we're going to paint squares on the wall with a one-and-a-half-inch border between the squares. They're all going to be different colors. There's going to be three rows of 12 squares. Simple, right? Until you do the math, and I know some of you guys at Lehigh, you do really good math. I'm not that kind of a person. And so the wall's rectangular, so those aren't actual squares, you know, right? Because they, the, if you did actual squares, they won't fit evenly on the wall. So we had to do, well, what kind of rectangles are we going to paint that look enough like squares to pass? So that was the first one. And then the second one was this side of the wall was like two inches shorter than this side of the wall. <laughs> so if we paint level squares, right, the whole wall's going to look crooked because it's going to accentuate the fact that there's a, a, a slope. And so we're like, okay, well, then what math do you have to do to find out the taper line to make this line up with this? And then here's the thing. Like I said, I don't do good math, but for some reason, I believe my way's right. <laughs> Right? And so, so here's Erin and here's me. She believes her way's right. I believe my way's right. And we often talk about how this is one of the most uh, fantastic team-building exercises that tested the team of our marriage in this. It was a very sanctifying moment <laughs> for both of us. Needless to say, preparing a place for someone is very, very, very hard work. And there was a lot of frustration that went into this, but it was beautiful because there was joy all up in it too. Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. And as Jesus is talking about this place that he's going to prepare for his disciples and for all of his people, it's going to be a lot of hard work. Not for the children that get to enjoy the room. It's going to be a, a lot of hard work for the Savior who's preparing the place. And there's a lot of tears, and there's blood, and there's sweat, and there's pain that the Son of God goes through to prepare a place for us infinitely and eternally more pain, more heartache, more trouble than any builder, contractor, designer, or average everyday mom and dad could ever go through in preparing a place for someone they love. But this is how much he loves you. And we're going to talk about that place he's preparing for us this morning. Today we'll be looking at John chapter 14. So if you want to turn there with me, 
And we'll read just the first four verses to start. Scripture's on the screen as well. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus says. Believe in God. Trust in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I'm going. So here we are. The setting is the Last Supper. And verse 1 implies that the hearts of the disciples are troubled. Jesus starts this text with, let not your hearts be troubled. I'm not sure how you picture the Last Supper in your minds. Maybe you picture Michelangelo's painting or maybe some Eastern icon of it uh, from ancient times. Or maybe you picture it something like this. But as you picture the Last Supper, John chapter 14 wants us to picture the looks on the disciples' faces as one of consternation, trouble, and pain, furrowed brows, worried looks on their faces stemming from hearts that are stirred up and bothered by trouble. The Last Supper is one of those wildly amazing and yet wildly uncomfortable dinner conversations. In the midst of what has so far been a wildly amazing yet wildly uncomfortable week for all of them. Jesus, after he raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, a group of religious leaders got together, and from that day on, the scriptures tell us, they plotted to kill him. And so now the death threat, the wanted signs are everywhere. The death threat is on them, and for a short time, John 11 tells us that Jesus and his disciples went into hiding for a little bit, but not for long. This week changed everything, and so on Palm Sunday, Jesus gets on a donkey and rides into the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of people, and John tells us, partly because of the Lazarus event, they come out and they begin to say, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's our king, right? And so he rides into the city. Now with death threats on your back and you're riding into the city as people call you Messiah, this is dangerous territory now. Everything has changed. Throughout the gospel of John, you've heard this phrase, my hour has not yet come. Uh, you might remember at the beginning of this series, uh, Mark Cote from Safe Place, he spoke on uh, the text in John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. And Jesus says to Mary, my time has not yet come. And I love what Mark said. He said this time that Jesus is talking about, his hour has not yet come. This hour that Jesus is talking about is once he steps into that hour, once that time comes, it's going to set into motion a whole series of events for which there is no turning back. And so later in the Gospel of John, it says they sought to arrest him, but his time had not yet come, so they weren't able to do it. They sought again to grab him, but his time had not yet come, John chapter 8. Now, with death threats and the shadow of the cross looming heavy over the whole scene, Palm Sunday, everybody shouting Hosanna, everything's public and out in the open, Jesus finally says this, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and he doesn't mince words. He knows what this hour means. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. A few moments later, he goes on to say, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And I imagine Jesus saying it 
like this. When I'm lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. The Son of Man will be lifted up. And so think about the trouble and the troublesome week that they're going through as they sit down for dinner on this Thursday night. As he spends the Last Supper with his disciples, he's beginning to speak of things that cause this shadow of trouble to fall heavier on their hearts. At dinner, here's the conversation. One of you will betray me. And then he sends out Judas Iscariot to go and do what he's about to do. Another topic he brings up at the dinner table is the fact that he's leaving to go somewhere. John 13, 33, he says to them, little children, yet a little while I'm with you, you will seek me just as I've said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And you have to understand what this must have felt like to hear these words. These guys left everything to follow Jesus. And for the better part of three years, wherever he was, they were there with him. They were there with it. Feeding of the 5,000, right there with him. Raising of Lazarus from the dead, right there with him. Teaching parables, right there with him. In a storm, on a boat, right there with him. We've been right there with you the whole time. And now Jesus, in the midst of the death threats, in the midst of the, the heavy things that are going on this week, Jesus says, I'm going somewhere. You just can't come to where I'm going. The fear of becoming somehow abandoned is beginning to rise up in their hearts. And Peter, just as he often does, takes the conversation a step further. In verse 36, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Now do you see why their hearts are troubled? To hear those words in John 14, this is literally the verse right before John 14, 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you see why their hearts are troubled? Everything they've been going through. The awkwardness of this dinner conversation. And the tragedy is that everything Jesus says is going to come true that he's bringing up that's troubling them. One of them will betray him. Peter will deny him. And beyond that, the rest of the apostles are going to abandon him, except for the apostle John. They're going to abandon him out of fear. Jesus is going to go somewhere where they can't come. And they'll find out soon enough that they can't come with him. Not if they're going to have the life that is truly life. He's going to a place that only he can go. Not if we're going to have the life that is truly life. So when Jesus responds in John 14, 1 with, let not your hearts be troubled, this is the context. This is the soup that they're sitting in. So outwardly, it might look like this, and we don't know. But the table's the right height. It's an accurate portrayal, right? Outwardly, it might look like this, but inwardly, it looks more like this. If you can get a painting of what their hearts felt like. This is Rembrandt's storm on the Sea of Galilee. They've been here before, and maybe you've been here before too. Can you remember the last time your heart felt like this? Can you remember the last time you were stricken with trouble that just so bothered your heart? Maybe you received a word over a dinner conversation like the disciples, 
or maybe you received a phone call or email, email, some other way, but you received a word that sent what was a peaceful calm sea into a crazy spinning storm of what in the world is happening to me and my life right now. Maybe you've received troubling news related to something at work. Maybe even the loss of a job. Maybe you've received troubling news about your health or the health of someone you love that's now got you feeling like this about your future. Maybe it's something else, but if you can locate that space, that emotional geography of the heart this morning, this is where John 14 speaks to. This is the place that these texts speak to. I remember I was at the Lehigh Valley Mall. I had a lunch appointment. I think it was at the Chipotle there. And then I walked out to my car. I was parked by the Macy's. And I walked out to my car, and I saw that I had missed call from my Uncle Art. And Uncle Art was one of those guys, when, when I was too young to know anything intellectually, you know, when, you know that age when you only know how people make you feel? <laughs> Not just like what, how people... You don't really have a lot of the, the, the intellectual downloads, but you know how certain people make you feel. And this guy made me feel like a million bucks. Every time I saw him, I would just run to him. And you know what's crazy? We had a, a season of time where we got out of touch with one another, but in college, he became that man. He became one of those men in my life again. Incredible. He was a mentor, a friend, a brother in Christ. We'd pray together. And I remember he calls me, and so I call him back right away because I loved hearing from him just like a kid. I just ran to him every time, you know? And he's like, hey, Matt, I got a, um, I got a diagnosis this week. Uh, I went to the doctor, and they tell me that my heart condition is one they can't work on anymore. I'm too old. The surgery's too risky. So basically, he gave me a lot of jargon. And then he said, basically, like, I'm, I'm a ticking time bomb. My heart's going to stop at some point, and I don't know when, but it could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It could be two years from now. Who knows? But I thought I'd let you know. And I'm also preparing my funeral and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. I wish I could be there. And he goes in to talk about all the hymns that are going to be sung at his funeral, the scriptures that are going to be read, the songs that are going to be sung. And I would love for you to speak at my funeral, Matt. Would you, would you share at my funeral? And I said, oh, sure. It's a weird conversation because he's talking about dying. He's really giddy about his funeral. You know, I hung up the phone. I mean, it was, you know, I didn't cry or anything on the phone. But then as soon as I hung up the phone, I just lost it. I just lost it. Maybe you're going through not just a moment where you've experienced that, like last week or two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Maybe you're going through a season like that where it just feels like this all the time. Let not your heart be troubled. And beautiful words in the midst of this, in the midst of this storm. Maybe there's something in your own heart and life that troubles you. It's not out there, it's in here. Maybe it's a sin struggle that you can't shake or get free from. A struggle with addiction, a difficult relationship in your life, or an affliction that just won't go away. You don't know how to overcome this thing. What has you troubled, brothers and sisters, this morning? And how do you cope with it? The word trouble in this text it means to cause a person inward commotion, take away his or her calmness of mind, to disturb, disquiet, or make, make rest restless. When's the last time you felt like that? Or maybe you're carrying something of this kind of trouble in your heart with you this morning. So again, what's got you troubled? 
And then how do you cope with it? Because we've got ways of dealing with this stuff. Your ways look different than mine. But we've got ways of dealing with this stuff. When Peter says to Jesus, I'll die for you, he's coping. He's been doing this for a while now. You know, Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles, then I'm going to be crucified, then I'm going to die, then on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. And Peter says, I'm not going to let that happen to you. It's a coping mechanism. He's been doing this for a long time. I'm not going to let that happen to you. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have the things in mind that are men's things, people things. This is God things we're talking about. The Son of Man must be handed over to be crucified. Peter doesn't know how to deal with this news. Have you ever done that before? There's news you don't feel like dealing with, and so there's a coping mechanism you step into almost as a knee-jerk reaction to the thing. Jesus is talking about troubling things, and Peter's like, I'll die for you. No, you won't, Peter. You don't have the strength to carry out the very thing you're talking about. He's coping. And Peter seems to cope by leaning harder on his own resources. I believe he means it when he says, I'll die for you. I believe he means it when he says, I'll go wherever you go. But he does not have the strength in and of himself to live this out. And so when Jesus is arrested and the threat of death comes even harder on him and fear sets in and Jesus is over there on trial and he's standing outside the window around a fire and somebody says to him, wait a minute, aren't you his disciple? I don't know him. And he denies Jesus three times. The same self-reliance that says, I'll go anywhere, is the same self-reliance he falls back on when he says, I don't know Jesus. Peter, in his moments of weakness, is not trusting in the Lord with all his heart. He's leaning on his own understanding. And he's living as if he doesn't have a heavenly father who loves and cares for him. Therefore, he has to father and love and care for himself. Some people have called this the spiritual orphan mindset, where we live as if we don't have a good, good father in heaven who loves and cares for us. So instead, we try to do life, maybe even live the Christian life on our own and our own resources, rather than on the strength and the resources that only God can provide. But here's the thing. Peter is not an orphan, and neither are you if you belong to Jesus. Amen? You're not an orphan. What I find remarkable in John 14 is that Jesus knows all of this about Peter and what he's going to do in just a few hours. He knows everything that's going to happen with the rest of the disciples bailing on him, except for John. He knows everything about you and me and the weird ways that we try to cope with stuff that have nothing to do with relying on him and the strength that he provides. And I love this. He knows everything about them. He knows everything about you and me. And yet in the midst of it, his response, Peter, you're going to deny me. By the way, let not your heart be troubled. Isn't that remarkable? There's no chapter break. Chapter 13 and chapter 14, those are references so that we can read the scriptures together in communities like this. But if you just read the text, there is no break there. It's the next thing he says. You're going to deny me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. What an amazing Savior and an amazing word of comfort 
and something that would be deeply, deeply, and will be deeply grievous and bothering to Peter's soul. Denying Jesus is arguably going to be the worst thing that Peter will ever do. But there's a root underneath that fruit that Jesus is getting at. And Jesus wants to weed this thing out of his life as well. It's the relying on his own strength, the leaning on his own resources, rather than trusting in God. You know the scene, because earlier on in dinner, Jesus is drawing this out, at, uh, he's drawing this out of Peter as well. The Bible says, Jesus, knowing that the Father has given all things into his hands, right? He, he, he takes off his outer garment, he puts on a, a, a towel, a robe, and, and a basin, and he begins to do what? He begins to wash his disciples' feet. And then he gets to Peter, and what does Peter say? You, you know this. You, you will never wash my feet. You will never wash my feet. Again, here's that Peter thing. You see it? It comes up again. And you'll never wash my feet. No, you're my master, my savior. It's not about you doing for me. It's about me doing for you. Right? It's about me doing for you, Lord. You will never wash my feet. Just like you will never go to the cross. I'll never let that happen to you. Ah, and then Jesus says, Peter, unless I wash your feet, you have no part with me. It's another way of saying, Peter, unless I wash you, you and I don't have anything to do with one another. And I love this. Peter says, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash my head. Wash my hands. Baptize me. Right, you know? The foundation of our relationship with God, and praise God, the foundation of our relationship with God is not based on what we do for him, but what he has done for us. And this is what he's trying to get into Peter's heart. Unless I wash you, you and I have nothing to do with each other. That's what he's done for us. We love because he first loved us. And so a well-known passage in Proverbs 3 says this, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. It will be healing to your, fl your flesh and a refreshment to your bones. And so Jesus is redirecting Peter's gaze away from himself and onto Jesus. Away from what Peter's going to do for God. I'll die for you. I'll never let that happen to you. I'll never let you. No. Jesus is redirecting his gaze away from himself. And he's redirecting our gaze this morning away from ourselves and onto the Savior who loved us and gave himself for us. Uh, uh, I'll lay down my life for you. No, no. Peter, trust in God. Trust also in me. Peter, don't look to yourself or to your own strength. Look to me. Peter, don't lean on your own understanding. Lean on me and trust in me with all of your heart. Peter, don't try to secure a place for yourself in this world out of fear. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I'm going to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, you will be also. No, you cannot go where I'm going right now. And there are reasons for that that are related to your salvation. But you will follow me afterward. Trust me. Where do you need to hear that word from Jesus this morning? Eyes off you. Eyes on him. Transfer the trust away from you and on to him.
Where are you trying to secure a place for yourself? Living as though you don't have a father in heaven who loves you and cares for you. Later on in the conversation, Jesus says this to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Some people have called this the orphan mindset, spiritual orphans, as opposed to the son the sons and daughters mindset. One of the symptoms of sin is that it causes us to to live as people who don't have a good, good father in heaven to love us and care for us and look out for us. I was listening to a sermon a few months ago by a guy named Larry Crabb, and he shared two quotes from another guy named Oswald Chambers. I hope I get the quotes right. But he said that these, these quotes, these two quotes, have, have, have brought truths to his heart that helped him frame out the season of Christian life that he was living in. But Oswald Chambers says this, he says, no one makes much progress in the Christian life until they first realize that life is less orderly than it is tragic. No one makes much progress in the Christian life until they first realize that life is less orderly than it is tragic. Orderly was in the Garden of Eden, Orderly was, is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. In the meantime, we live here. And stuff happens, doesn't it? The other quote he said that really helped frame this life of growing in grace and knowing Jesus. The other Oswald Chambers quote was, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. The root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. So put the two quotes together and here's how I mashed them together. Life is hard, but God is good. Life is hard, but God is good. Or Jesus says it better. He says, in this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Life is hard, but God is good. But the spiritual orphan mindset says it like this. Life is hard, and I'm on my own. Life is hard, and I got to take matters into my own hands. Life is hard, and I bypass Jesus to go do it some other way. That's the spiritual orphan mindset. So when we hear words that make us feel abandonment, or when our hearts are tempted and tried and troubled, the orphan mindset says, man, if I don't care for myself, no one's going to care for me. If I don't secure a place for myself, no one's going to prepare a place for me. And so rather than trusting in a good, good father, we live as though we don't have one. There's a couple of guys, uh, their names are Thune and Walker, and they have a book called The Gospel-Centered Life. And they outline the contrast between the orphan mindset and the son and daughter mindset in this book. And I just want to share a few with you. I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But I thought it might be helpful this morning to share a few with you. The orphan lacks a vital daily intimacy with God. The son or the daughter, prayer and communion with God is a vital ongoing part of each day. The orphan is anxious about friends, money, school, grades, and the etc. is whatever else you want to fill in there. The son or the daughter is able to find rest and contentment in God's care and provision in the midst of any circumstance. The orphan lives on a success-fail basis. The son or the daughter feels forgiven, accepted, and loved. The orphan, not teachable, defensive when criticized. The son or the daughter is teachable and willing to learn and grow. The orphan, strong-willed with ideas, agendas, opinions. The son or the daughter, growing in conscious dependence upon the Holy Spirit. The orphan looks for satisfaction in things like positions or possessions. 
The son or the daughter looks for satisfaction in the love of God. And last, the orphan's solution to failure, try harder. The son or the daughter, trust deeper. And by the way, if you're a try harder person, you hear trust deeper as try harder to trust deeper. That's not what trust deeper means. It's not try harder to trust deeper. You see, the smallest and weakest faith that places that faith in Jesus Christ receives everything that Jesus has to offer. Because it's not about the strength of your faith and it's not about the size of your faith. It's about the strength of the Savior in whom you place your faith. Okay, so Jesus says even faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains because it's the one in whom that mustard seed has been placed. It's a beautiful thing. It's not try harder to trust deeper. It's let your seed get planted in the soil of God's love and grow there. Stay there. Root there. Remain there. So what does your life look more like this morning? The orphan or the son and daughter? And if we're honest, catch me on a certain day of the week at a certain time, I look more like the spiritual orphan than the son and daughter. If we're honest, we're sometimes on the one side and sometimes on the other. And part of our growing in grace is learning how to trust in Jesus through seasons of trial, through seasons of temptation and trouble, and let him grow us towards a life that is increasing its dependence upon the Father and upon the Son and upon the Holy Spirit. Rich Mullins said, we're growing young. We're growing young. Because grown-ups dress themselves and take themselves wherever they want to go. But children get dressed and let mom and dad carry them wherever he wants, they want to carry them. Unless you become converted and become like little children, Jesus says, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. This pilgrim journey we're on is a journey of growing young. Amen? How much time do we have left? No, 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 you don't want to do that. I really do want to be mindful. This morning, where do you typically turn to find comfort in your times of trouble? And to whom or what, instead of God, are you tempted to turn? Because that's the thing. We have ways of coping. Peter has his ways of coping. Matt Kay has his ways of coping. And you have yours, too. When trouble comes, do you turn to someone or something completely powerless to give you hope and comfort and strength in the midst of your trouble? People turn to all kinds of things. Sexual immorality, screens, success, shopping, anxiety. Where do you turn? Pick your poison. There's all kinds of places that we turn, and the love of God is redirecting us away from false ways of coping and fixing our eyes on Jesus, who says, let not your heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Trust me. Trust in me. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, but sometimes we choose to follow other ways, so-called truths, and live other kinds of lives. He is the way, the truth, and the life. But sometimes we choose a different way to follow. So when we choose a different way that isn't the way, or we choose a so-called truth that is really just a lie, we wind up living a life that isn't the life that is truly life and the life that Jesus redeemed us for. And this is the beautiful thing, and it's really important as believers that we keep this before one another, is what is the end game of all this? 
What is the goal of the Christian life? You know, some of you go to the gym, and I used to go to the gym, but I don't anymore, right? But some of you go to the gym, and when you go to the gym, you're there, there to do one thing. You're there to, to be fit or to work out or something like that, right? But you can spot right away if somebody's at the gym to not do that thing. You're like, oh, this person's here to talk. I'm here to work out. This person's here to do this. I'm here to do that. And so here's the thing about the Christian life. The Christian life is the gym whereby we grow in Christ-likeness. And so there's a lot of activities we can add to the church, but the church's primary purpose is to grow us in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. And then the scriptures give us the goal. He has saved us and redeemed us and called us his own. And the end game is in Romans 8, 28 and 29. Check it out. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He's working all this out to make us more and more and more and more like Jesus. So that when people see you, they see, if I see you next year, I see more of a reflection of Jesus than I see this year. And the next year, and the next year, and the next year. The, The early Christian writers talked about it like putting iron in the fire. If you put a sword in the fire, the sword is not the fire, so don't get it mixed up. The sword is not the fire and the fire is not the sword. But when iron is in the fire, iron has this thing about it that it's able to absorb the fire into itself so much so that it glows like the fire after a little while and so much so that if you get near it and touch it, it'll burn you like the fire after a little while. And they would say this is the Christian life, to so abide in Jesus, to so abide in the fire of his presence and his love that he just starts to fill us that we start to glow radiant with the fruit of his spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, and so much so that if they get near you, they experience getting near him. Not because we're awesome, but because he's in us. Amen? And so Ephesians 3 is literally a prayer for this. Paul prays for the church, and this is the prayer we could pray for the church every single day, is the Lord strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, so that Jesus would dwell richly in our hearts through faith, so we'd be so rooted and grounded in his love that we would experience the love of Jesus, how high, how long, how deep, how wide, that we'd know this love experientially, to know this love that surpasses knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God, so that when somebody gets close to you, they say, what is that thing about you? There's a vibe, and you say, it's not a vibe. He has a name. His name is Jesus. I would love to share more about him with you. That's a thing, and that's the thing he wants us to be about. And so he's preparing a place for us, and in the meantime, he's preparing us for that place. It's a beautiful thing. And this is, I love this, you know the way to get there. So how do I get there? How do we get there? To the place you're preparing for us, Lord? How do we get there? And I love this, Jesus says it this way. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to God. And there's only one way to God, and his name is Jesus. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus is God. The only way to get to know you is to get to know you. I had a friend, she was hanging out on our back porch a few years ago, and she said she was hanging out with one of those Christians, you know, and she's like, I'm experiencing this thing, this, this 
I don't know if she called it a vibe or what, but she was like, there was just this thing. And like, as she talked about Jesus, I was like, oh man. And, and then she said, I almost had a come to Jesus moment just talking to her. And then she's, but that didn't, that didn't quite happen. But she said like, you know, I almost had a come to Jesus moment just talking to her. I said, oh man, he's knocking on the door of your heart. We'll call her Jane. Jane, he's knocking on the door of your heart. And I began to share with her a passage from scripture that talks about this. And she said, but I already pray to God. Don't I already know God? I mean, in, in my community, we call it God as I understand him. God as I understand him. I already know God, don't I? I said, Jane, Jane as I understand you is different than knowing Jane. I can see Jane from across the street. I can read about Jane on the internet. I can go through a thousand books or resources. I can even make up in my mind what I think Jane is actually like, and some of it based on real evidence. But there's nothing like knowing Jane, and you don't want me to know Jane as I understand her, do you? You want me to know Jane for who you really are. I need Jane to reveal herself to me. And by the way, I need to know God as he really is, not as some people talk about him. I want to know the true and living God. And by the way, his name is Jesus. There's a lot of arguments uh, you know, in, in the context of, of world religions and worldviews, and we don't have time for all that this morning, but there's only one way to God because Jesus is God. And it's about knowing the true and living God, who is Jesus. And so the way, and this is important for us today, the way is not merely a teaching, although there is true teaching. The way is not merely a set of practices, although there are practices that will help you deepen in your faith. The way is not merely a set of principles. The way is a person, and he is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, who took on flesh, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. You know his name, right? He came and died for your sins, and he took on himself every sin Every shame, the punishment that we deserve for our sins, Isaiah says the punishment that brought us peace was laid upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. And this Jesus rose again on the third day, ascended to the Father's right hand, is coming again to judge the living and the dead, and in the meantime gives every believer in him his Holy Spirit to prepare us for the place that he's preparing for us. Praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. The way is a person who adopted us into the Father's family through his blood. No longer orphans, no longer aliens and strangers, you now belong to the household of God. Who brings our chaos back into order? Who makes an orphan a son and daughter? The king of glory, the king above all kings. So wrapping up this morning, just a few questions. What has your heart been troubled by lately? What's got the inside painting of your heart looking like the ship on the Sea of Galilee? And where do you typically turn to find comfort in your times of trouble? To whom or what instead of God are you tempted to turn? Tempted to live like a spiritual orphan who doesn't have a heavenly father to love and care for you? And how is the Lord inviting you to trust him? To cast your cares upon the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who loves and cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 7 says, you can cast all of your cares, all your troubles, all your anxieties upon him, 
because he cares for you. You have a good, 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 good father. Amen? You're not an orphan anymore if your trust is in Jesus. And now you can live, not tight-fisted going, how am I going to handle this, but open-handed and letting the wind of the Holy Spirit blow through and carry with it every care so you can rest carefree in the care of God. This is the heart of our Father for his children, and he wants us to do this. And so I want to invite you to stand as we wrap up this morning. Jesus says, where I'm going, you can't come. Why can't we come? Why can't we come? Because if you came to where Jesus was going, you would die in your sins. Because Jesus was going to die for our sins. He was going to take our place, and that's why we can't go where he was going. He took our place so that we wouldn't have to go there, to this place of receiving the punishment we deserve for our sins, to the place of receiving the ultimate consequence of all of our sins. Jesus took that place for you and for me so that we instead could have a Father in heaven forever who loves and cares for us and a place in the Father's house. There's many rooms there, and there's room for you this morning. Churches this morning, we're part of a global family of believers. Churches this morning in places all over the world are ending their worship services in the way that we're about to just end this sermon time. I thought I'd share it with you because it was really beautiful. There's uh, ancient tribes in the northern regions of Kenya. And when trouble would fall on their community, they would take their hand. It was a curse. They would take their hand and they would throw their hands westward towards the land that is now Uganda. They would throw, and, and the reason why they would do this is they would, it would be symbolic of them taking their diseases, their pain, their, their, their troubles and concerns, and taking it and sending it to the other tribe. Right? And, and by the way, we have that tribalism here in the U.S. too. People do it all the time to the other tribe. Name the other tribe. They do it all the time. And, and so they would say, you know, oh my goodness, my daughter is sick and she's dying. He's like, oh, we just take this pain and send it to those people over there. And we take this, this, this financial trouble, just send it to those people over there. And we take this, this guilt and this shame, we send it to them. Send it over there. And, and I love this because when the gospel took root in their communities, they heard that Jesus Christ became a curse for us that Jesus Christ took our sorrows and our troubles and our pain. And they said, oh my goodness. And so they took this thing. And now, and literally all over the world, even in the U.S., there are, there are churches that worship and they end like this. They have a wooden cross in the front of their church building. And they do this. We'll go to that next slide there. They say all our problems and they take their hand. They go, we send it to the cross. Whew. I'd love to end our time together here this morning. I don't know what your problems are, but you can grab them and send them to the cross. First Peter says you can cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. So we want to end with what they call the Kenyan blessing. And this is our, our heart before good father who wants to bear our burdens and carry our sorrows. He loves us that much. So I want to invite you to take with a sweeping motion all the things that you're carrying this morning and to send it to the cross of Christ. All our problems we send to the cross of Christ and bring your boldness 
to this. All our difficulties, we send to the cross of Christ. All the devil's works, we send to the cross of Christ. And maybe there's one that you just want to name right now in the silence of your heart. Grab that thing too. We send to the cross of Christ. And now we end like this. You put your hand up like this. Because Jesus is risen and reigning at the Father's right hand. And we end like this. All our hopes we set on the risen Christ. May Christ the Son of Righteousness shine upon us. Scatter the darkness from before our path. And the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be in our midst and remain with us always. In Jesus' name, amen.